The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Welcome to American Bandstand, and folks, it's 12 years after the Beatles broke up, and we are loving the second British invasion. That's Dexie's Midnight Runners, and this song is the number one song in the UK, the US, Ireland, and Australia. Folks, it's only 1982, but I think we can safely say that Dexie's Midnight Runners will be topping the charts with hit after hit after hit after hit for a long time to come. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. That didn't happen. Dexie's Midnight Runners did not top the charts for the rest of the decade. I thought they would, as a young child listening to the radio. What a great song. Who was Dexie? I didn't know. Which of those guys is Dexie? It turns out Dexie wasn't a who, but a what. It was a a nickname for Dexedrine, an amphetamine popular in their hometown of Birmingham which gave clubgoers the energy to dance all night. If only their chart performance had some kind of artificial stimulant. They released 16 singles in the U.S. and Come On Eileen went to number one. One other record made it to number 86. And the other 14 failed to chart at all. They were, at least in the United States, a great one-hit wonder. They even got a little desperate, releasing a song called Jack Wilson Said, which I have to assume was an attempt to ride the coattails of the runaway success of the History of Literature podcast and its host, Jack Wilson. Maybe the problem was they misspelled his name as Jackie with an I, I i.e. In any event, that song flopped as well. One hit wonders is a term we associate with pop music, but it applies to other realms as well. A movie star who makes one great film and disappears forever, or a director. It's the 15 minutes of fame that Andy Warhol talked about. Is it a bad thing to be a one-hit wonder? There's a negative connotation to it, I think, sure. But there are plenty of bands that never even have one hit. Would you rather be a one-hit wonder? Or a no-hit, obscure, (laughs) I don't even know what the word is of a no-hit mediocrity. It's been almost 40 years since Come On Eileen hit the airwaves, and I still know the song, and I still know the name of the band. Millions of bands have come and gone since then. And yet, we can't help thinking there's something sad about one-hit wonders. It's the sadness of Salieri, close enough to genius to be able to recognize it, and to recognize how far above him that Mozart is. Or it's like, The Seinfeld episode, where Jerry and Elaine are deciding who gets to sit in first class. They've been given one upgrade. And Jerry says, of course it should be me. I've been in first class. And Elaine says, well, why why should that be? That That should mean that I should get first class. I've never been there. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't know what it's like. I need it. A little bit of that to one hit wonders, too. Dexie's Midnight Runners were close enough. They might have thought they'd be the next Beatles. 
scoring chart topper after chart topper. They had tasted the champagne, but it was just a single sip. Not a bottle, not even a glass. They were left smacking their lips, looking for more, remembering the taste. Meanwhile, they watched Duran Duran guzzling the stuff like water. I've never had a single hit. Why should I be... Why should I feel pity for them? Why should, is that condescending? And yet, I do. There's something pathetic about just one hit. Undeniably, there's something pathetic, disturbing, confusing, sad, maybe even tragic about these one-hit wonders. But let's get to our real subject today, which is not pop music, but literature. In case you're new to the show, this is not American Bandstand, and this is not 1982. It's 2019, and the show is called The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. One Hit Wonders. A fun one to explore. Mike Palindrome will be here in a few minutes. Mike is the president of the Literature Supporters Club. But that could be in jeopardy after today. We'll have to see. I'll still back him. But I wonder if there might be some unrest. After Mike confesses to all the famous works of literature he's never read in one episode. We will see. We were talking about one-hit wonders at the club one day, both the musical kind and the literary kind. There are some similarities. You read a book by a great author, and then you learn that the author never wrote another. Why not? Maybe they died young. Maybe they had one book in them. Maybe they met with some kind of life obstacle, or were disturbed by the success for some reason. Or maybe we can define one-hit wonders differently. Maybe they wrote a lot of books, but there was only one good one. Only one that resonated with the public for whatever reason. Or only one really worked and the rest failed to launch. It's an interesting concept to explore what happened to these people. What we think of their books and the rest of their work. So here's what we're going to do on this episode of the History of Literature. Can we call this the Thanksgiving episode? I'm imagining people cooking for their family while listening to this one, making a big feast, having a glass of wine now and then, toasting some of the great literary one-hit wonders. Mike and I do a draft where we choose five great literary one-hit wonders, and then we pair each of them with a song, a song that is itself a one-hit wonder. We explore what makes the book so great and what happened to the author afterwards, and we mash them all together with some celebratory music to see which stars only flashed once before flaming out.
Okay, joining me now is Mike Palindrome, frequent guest and himself a multi-hit wonder in life as well as here on the podcast. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. Okay, so one-hit wonders. This is a fun one. I think most people our age, when they hear that phrase, tend to think of the term as referring specifically to the 1980s and pop music. It seemed like the radio was full of these bands who had so much promise and then completely fizzled out. Is that what comes to mind when I say one-hit wonder to you? Yeah, I think maybe it's really tied to the to the radio. And I was just explaining to my daughter that, you know, there was, you got chills when a song you loved came on the radio and Mm -hmm. the TV show, Stranger Things. uh, Or actually, I don't know if Stranger Things, oh, we were watching some uh, teenage film, The Perks of a Wildflower, actually. And Stranger Things probably has the same thing where a, a, a character's favorite song comes on on the radio and they just look have this look of glee. And I was telling my daughter that, you know, I don't think her generation appreci- quite appreciates that. Yeah, the <laughs> randomness of it and the, the good fortune of it. I used to yeah. have like a Christmas song, my favorite Christmas song. And I would have <laughs> I would sort of mark the season by saying, mm-hmm. oh, I love to hear this song at least once every every christmas but it would only happen if i heard it on the radio or if i walked into a mall and they were playing it it wasn't like now where if that's my goal i can just open up spotify and and hit yeah. play so and and it also you never knew who was going to be a one hit wonder and i think that's where we could tie this back into literature you re, you'd listen to something like uh, take on me by aha where that song was as big as Duran Duran. And you think, oh, maybe these guys are the next Duran Duran. But then it just (laughs) fizzles out and AHA does not become Duran Duran. And that's that's one of those, that's one of the things about these uh, authors that we're going to be looking at today. There's a few different ways you could define one-hit wonders. You could look at great books by people who only wrote one book or uh, people who wrote a lot of books but only one good one. And so we're going to take five, uh, and I'm going to let you go first. But just in general, did you have a working definition of one-hit wonder that you were uh, searching for when you were doing the research here? I I try to shy away from people who had produced a lot Mm -hmm. but were only known for one book because, like, people love Pierre by Melville. Yeah. You know, and I I confess I've never read it and will probably die without having read it. Yeah. you know, without reading it. And, and even you know, he, you could he say, wrote so much more than Moby Dick. Right. And you so. could even say Bartleby the Scrivener was yeah was successful in a slightly different genre. So, yeah. Um, okay. So what is your first pick? What's atop your list of literary one-hit wonders? I have to go with Invisible Man. Hmm. Ralph yeah, Ellison. It was, yeah. It was really... Um, it's a great pick. Just a, Just an incredible... Uh, sprawling book. Yeah, I don't know what else was published that year or in that era. It was 1947. Yeah. Um, well, I know he became friends with Saul Bellow, uh, yeah. and they became roommates. I think that was. I think of Saul Bellow as being one of his closest peers, and it's that kind of book. You you read Invisible Man, and you think there really is no reason to think this guy isn't going to write. You know, five incredible books like this it's a very sad story what happened to him afterwards 
Yeah, his second book, uh, he lost the manuscript in a in a house fire. And, yeah, uh, but even that, even before that little, um, you know, bit of romanticism, you know, he he was struggling with a sequel. I mean, Invisible Man opens in such uh, it, it just really grabs you. It, you know, I am invisible, understood simply because people refuse to see me, like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows. It is as if I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. Um, and the the way he tackles all these social types, you know, the the Black Power movement, the communist American Communist Party, and people in all walks of life, uh, you know, uh, black academics, and and yeah, to think that you know you, you're right. I mean, you would have expected you know a whole flurry of novels afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was, and I mean, he was, it was successful enough. It's not as if he were forced to return to his, uh, his job, you know, at the post office or something. And, and that hindered his writing. He was, he was a literary star after this book came out. I guess we have to put in parentheses, we're not counting Juneteenth, the novel that he was, he agonized over and was published posthumously as we're, we're setting that one aside. He lived his life as a one hit wonder, basically. Yeah, I mean, the whole posthumous thing is, to me, very, is fascinating in this, what, when we talk about what hit, one, what one hit wonders, because people write for accolades and acclaim while alive. Yeah. For it to come after they're dead, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but I don't know, there's, there's a, I guess there's a part of me that thinks that. Yeah. Like, who, who cares, you know, that... It became a success because he wasn't able to see it right or she wasn't able to see it but i guess that's the thing with art and you know leaving a legacy i mean ralph ellison he 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 just was very plugged into the literary scene you know he mm -hmm. was very much like crossed over into like the political sphere and social commentary as well as you know being a, a writer and yeah i just i i, I don't know if we'll get the full story, if if there have been memoirs, uh, history, biographies that have come out about him, um, that's the thing. I mean, you know, with a song or or if it were, I guess, like a poem or something, you might think, oh, he got lucky. But the novel is so is such a demanding form, and that novel in particular just displays all of his gifts as a novelist and just as an intellectual. It's such an impressive work. It's just a great loss that uh, that we only got one real book from him or, or that he was only able to produce one book in his lifetime, one novel. And, it, you know, and it's, its success has remained steady. It's taught in so many college classes yeah. today. And people bring it up all the time like you know I, I would say it's you know on par with a cultural reference the way people are now bringing up like madonna or prince i mean it, it has that kind of like everyone knows if you haven't read it you know what you know what it is mm -hmm. okay so we for these picks i forgot to mention this we are going to pair each of these picks with a song a one-hit wonder song because you chose Invisible Man, I get to pick the song. So the first choice that I had, the first thing that came to mind was one of our 1980s pop music songs, which is a song about being invisible, the fear of being invisible. So I was going to choose 
uh, Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. <laughs> which was which was also recorded by Molly Ringwald. So I might uh I might uh I might have to play a little bit of that as well. Won't you come see about me? I'll be alone dancing with baby. Tell me your troubles and doubts. Give Since this was the the song from the Breakfast Club, and she was the star of the Breakfast Club, Breakfast Club, she recorded it years later. Uh, what I really liked about that song, there was a point where uh, they didn't write the song, uh, Simple Minds didn't, and when they, someone, the producer or somebody brought it in for them, and and the band's lead singer said, "We're Simple Minds. We don't record songs that sound like Simple Minds. We record our own music." And they said, well, just just do this one. And and it turned out to be their only, you know, it went straight to number one. That it was like a smash hit. So I was like, maybe don't be so proud about being simple minds. This is this is good stuff. But ultimately, that's not the song I'm going to pick. Um, it didn't really fit the other than the invisibility part. It didn't really fit the book. It's so couple oriented and it's not about society ignoring you. And I. I ultimately I ruled it out because Simple Minds did have another almost hit with their song Alive and Kicking, which went to number three. <laughs> so although I mean Spotify shows that Don't You Forget About Me has been played two hundred and eighty million times by Spotify listeners, and Alive and Kicking has been played thirty six million times. And I think a lot of those are probably like me where you you listen to don't you forget about me and then alive and kicking just comes on you know <laughs> before you change the channel <laughs> right. so i decided i wasn't going to use 80s pop music for anything from ellison i don't think the 80s were a very happy decade for him as he was struggling writings it just didn't fit so i'm going to go with a jazz composition from 1952 which was the year invisible man came out this is a, a one-hit wonder by a dc piano player hardly anyone knew his name was bernie miller and he'd been dead for seven years when this song was recorded by Jerry Mulligan and rocketed up the charts. So this is Bernie's Tune. Thank you. 
Okay. So I guess it's my turn to take one. Uh, since we were talking about uh, writers who only published one book in their life and maybe had a posthumous novel come out afterwards, why don't I take To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, which was published in 1960. The author lived for 56 more years without publishing another book. And even the supposed sequel, which came out after her death, turned out to be just an early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. So 56 years. And again, she was one of the most famous authors in America, all because of this book. It was a huge success, almost instantly canonized. And she was, you know, in demand as an author and lionized as an author. And when you read it, you know, with the, with the Ellison, you read it and you think this was a book he really had to labor over. It was a, a it's a tour de force. But with To Kill a Mockingbird, you would think that the author of To Kill a Mockingbird could crank out novels. The style is, it doesn't seem like something she's agonizing over. You'd think she would have written a dozen books. You don't get the sense that this was her magnum opus or that she, you know, only had one book in her or anything like that. But she did, it turns out she did agonize over it. She had some psychological trouble when she was writing it. And I, I learned recently at one point she threw the manuscript out the window into the snow and called up her editor and said, I'm finished. I threw the manuscript into the snow and he demanded that she run outside and pick up the pages. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think maybe one of the things that stopped her from writing, uh, she kind of struggled with success. She said in 1964, she never expected any sort of success with Mockingbird. I was hoping for a quick and merciful death at the hands of the reviewers. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I sort of hoped someone would like it enough to give me encouragement. I hoped for a little public encouragement, but I got rather a whole lot. And in some ways, this was just about as frightening as the quick, merciful death I'd expected. So um, she did use her time in a literary way um, where she uh, worked on a novel she left unfinished. And her, her other big contribution to American Letters was she helped her old friend, her childhood friend, Truman Capote, research a murder, which became the classic In Cold Blood. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what song would you pair with To Kill a Mockingbird? I, I try to come up with something from the era. I'm not really sure I did, but it, it was yeah. the the song <laughs> Pipeline by the Shantae's, which okay. I don't know. It's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is a tough one to, <laughs> I guess all of these, uh, some, well, not all of these, but some of these are, are tough to pair with music because you, you want to be respectful of the music. Yeah. Um, of the music or of the book? Oh, sorry, of the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I saw that this was what you were picking... <laughs> I guessed that it had to be the year um, yeah. because I oh, don't yeah. think this has anything else to do. This <laughs> surf music, I don't think has anything else to do with <laughs> with To Kill a Mockingbird. It makes me wonder if you've read the book or have any idea what it's about. Well, uh, I, I, I've never read the book and I've never seen the movie, the okay. Gregory Peck movie. I'm, I haven't seen the play. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I do know I used to like the 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 band the Boo Radleys. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is named after? Uh, sure, the character. Yeah, yeah, but but maybe they don't even have one hit. The Boo Rad. Oh, I, you know what? I should. Oh my gosh! I should have chosen a Boo Radley song. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we I missed that. Maybe we could play a little bit of that too. Okay. Okay, moving on. What is your next one-hit wonder? So the the next one is, of course, um, Confederacy of Dunces. Mm, yeah. Which, uh, oh, what a great story. And I think I've discussed this before in other podcast episodes uh, of history literature, but I, I did want to read a little bit of the forward in the edition I have with Walker Percy. Yeah, right. So Walker Percy, the novelist... Um, was instrumentally getting this published. And the reason is uh, um, John Kennedy Toole, after he committed suicide, his mom found the manuscript. And if people haven't read the book, it's just perfect that it was the mom yeah. who found it. Because the, mo- the, char- the, the character's mom in the novel uh, has a hilarious uh, part. But um, Walker Percy, who wrote the foreword, says... Um, uh, you know, this woman contacted me out of the blue. She phoned, she, she phoned me, um, which was preposterous, asking me to read uh, chapters of her son's novel. And then she came by his office and he said, he said to her, why would I want to read it? And she said, because it is a great novel. And then he says, over the years, I've become very good at getting out of things I don't want to do. Um, but she stood in his office and wanted me to start reading it so he took it home and then he read it and then i thought this was just a perfect description of how hard it is to get over that hurdle to be read by someone established Um, he said i read and first with a sinking feeling that it was not bad enough to quit Hmm. then with a prickle of interest then a growing excitement and finally an incredulity surely it was not possible that it was so good Yeah, uh, I know it's such a great story that his mother took it around. So 
so the author, John Kennedy Toole, had committed suicide at age 31. And for years, she tried to find a publisher for it. But she really kind of zeroed in on Walker Percy, I think, because he had that mix of philosophy and literature and humor and, of course, the New Orleans connection. And it finally, the book came out, thanks to Walker Percy, it came out. Uh, in 1980, when John Kennedy Tool had been dead for 11 years, and then it won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, which was a, uh, just a, an astonishing story. Yeah. It's a great pick. He really was like a the quintessential one-hit wonder, and and there was no opportunity for there to be a second hit. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, uh, it, it's a better Don Quixote. Mm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, going back to the well. Okay, well, I'm still getting emails about your. Uh, that might be your one hit. By the way, is your uh, your uh, your your takedown take of, of Don Quixote? <laughs> Which I, now now I have to. There's a new translation that came out, right? There's like a uh, yeah. there's like a soldier's chainmail on the cover. I guess I'll have to read it. You yeah, and you know you've. I've gotten so many suggestions for, uh, I'll pass them <laughs> along to you for ways to read it, ways to understand it, different parts to skip and parts to focus on. Mm-hmm. It really, there are a lot of fans of Don Quixote, especially in the Spanish speaking world who are really hoping that you will, uh, give it another chance. Um, <laughs> so Confederacy of Dunces, you know, the title comes from Jonathan Swift, who's an, an author of, I'm thinking about doing an episode on because he's so much fun. But the quote is, when a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. (laughs) And that's that's a a perfect quote for this character. He's sort of a a Falstaffian character. There's a lot of philosophy in the work. He loves Boethius. Um, You know, they were making a movie of it with Will Ferrell as the main character, and Steven Soderbergh was going to direct but it right. it all fell apart, and then there was another version with Zach Galifianakis as the lead, and that also fell apart. Fell apart. So people think it's it's had a bit of a curse attached to it as far as a film goes. But it, it'd be a hard book to film. I mean, it's. It, I, I I think it would it should be done by Paul Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh uh, yeah, um, and I think it should be like six hours long. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Fit it all in. Okay. So my choice for the song to pair with Confederacy of Dunces, because of all the philosophy in the work, mm-hmm. I almost chose... Edie Brickell's What I Am. <laughs> uh, for its lines, philosophy is a talk on a cereal box. And uh, philosophy is a walk on slippery rocks. Philosophy is a talk on a cereal box. Religion is a smile on a dog. I'm not aware of too many things. But then I thought once again, the song Circle was probably too successful to make what I am a true one-hit wonder. And, And actually... What I Am, it went to number one in Canada, but it was only number seven in the U.S., so maybe it wasn't, uh, I don't know if it qualifies as a true hit. Speaking of Edie Brickell, did you know that she made an album with Steve Martin? No, but she, she, I know she married 
She married Paul, Paul Simon, Simon, right? Yeah. 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 So I think uh, she did something with Steve Martin and his banjo. But uh, in any case, I wanted to find something. I did your trick of going back to the era. I wanted to find mm-hmm. something that John Kennedy Toole might have listened to and drawn some inspiration from. So I went back to 1961 when he mm-hmm. would have been 23. And I found a one-hit wonder from his native New Orleans and one that I think captures some of his humor. He liked big band music, and this isn't quite that, but it's kind of close. And, you know, the the tie-in here is, as you mentioned, Ignatius living with his mother, the genius surrounded by idiots in league against him. This is Ernie K. Doe, who had one hit to his name, this 1961 smash hit, which was part novelty, part catchy tune. We don't have a mother in the song, but we're close. This is (laughs) Mother-in-Law. Mother-in-Law. Okay, so who's, I guess it's my turn. So I will uh, take my next one-hit wonder. You know, I thought about taking Proust. Some people consider him a one-hit wonder, but I I consider all of his books to be individual hits, really. I don't think of the, I think of each volume as kind of being a hit. So instead, I'm going to take Withering Heights by Emily Bronte. Uh, I just did an episode on the Brontes, which was one of the more popular episodes that we've released. People love those books. They love those sisters. And Withering Heights is so good. It's such a an intense, fascinating work. But uh, it's a one-hit wonder because Emily Bronte tragically died before she could write any more books. Yeah, I mean, all of them, all of them passed away before their, I was listening to your episode and I didn't know that all of them had passed away before the the father, which is... Yeah, right. He outlived them all. Horrible. So it was such a, such a great book. Critics were astonished by the, the transgressive nature and the strange power of the book. I quoted a few of them in the Brontes episode, but here's one I don't think I quoted. Literary World said, quote, In the whole story, not a single trait of character is elicited which can command our admiration. Not one of the fine feelings of our nature seems to have formed a part in the composition of its principal actors. In spite of the disgusting coarseness of much of the dialogue and the improbabilities of much of the plot, we are spellbound. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) This is just great. Nobody seemed to really know what to make of, of Withering Heights or of Emily Bronte, which is one of the things that I love so much about it. You know, I I, I fall on the side of Jane Eyre. I have to say, uh, well, that's uh, good too. In the Jane Eyre versus Weathering Heights uh, <laughs> sister battle, so we might have done that once on uh, 
Didn't we include the Brontes yeah. in the duos episode? Great literary duos, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, okay. I, I, I have never finished Wuthering Heights. Oh, wow. So, yeah. The confessions are uh, are piling up here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I did have a good uh, song to pair with it. I think this this, okay. this is a better better pairing is um, uh, Saint Elmo's Fire by John Parr. Mm, okay, I I really did try to find a, a romantic song and ah, a couple of strange, yeah. strange romantic songs um, by actors. Don Johnson's Heartbeat or Bruce Willis had a romantic song, <laughs> but I, I again I felt like that was very disrespectful of uh, the book. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the the lyrics, I guess, the burning in me and and all that. You're thinking of the the passions that are raging between the main characters in Wuthering Heights. Yeah, and I also um, the the personal warmth I have towards that movie, Seeing the Ones Fire. Yeah, right. John Parr, interestingly, he took a swerve into the literary, which may have helped contribute to his being a one-hit wonder. The follow-up to St. Elmo's Fire was Uh a song called Love Grammar. And (laughs) it contains the line, um, I before he, except after she. Oh my and gosh. it was a, it was a total <laughs> flop, and it ended his career. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> so uh, that's a, a a piece of advice for all the uh, the young Beyonces and <laughs> out there is uh, <laughs> don't incorporate too many grammar rules in your <laughs> in your love songs. Uh, I also thought uh, it might be kind of interesting to pair this with something from the classical music world. It's not the sort of thing you really think about for a one-hit wonder as a classical composer, but it turns out that Mm -hmm. the uh, theme from Masterpiece Theater, the beloved PBS series, was kind of a Uh one-hit wonder. It was uh, the composer's only only hit. It was, uh, uh, and I think for a lot of people, it's just hearing that music is reminiscent of Jane Austen and the Brontes and Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy and all of those kinds of uh, kinds of stories. Oh, that yeah, that, that I didn't think of theme music, but yeah, that that would be good.
Okay, so let's move on. I think you have one more pick. What do you have as your um, final one-hit wonder? This this was a tough one because it's the Bell Jar by by Sylvia Plath, mm. and mm-hmm. you know I love her poetry, and I she wrote so much poetry, yeah. but her poetry you don't count her poetry as hits. Well, I, I guess I was just thinking of the novel and have, not having another novel by her it feels like a loss. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. I guess that's the thing about the one-hit wonders. When you think of music, you just feel like musicians are writing crap, and that's why they, they're not writing more hits. But with writers, it's such a complex project that you feel like it's not that they're writing badly. It's just something else that's going on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although there are there are times when you hear a song and it's so fully formed and so good, and you just think, why could they not do this again? Yeah. St. Elmo's Fire is a good example. Like he had the misstep with Love Grammar, but you would think he could have made it back (laughs) onto the radio with another, you know, big pounding anthem like St. Elmo's Fire, but that was not to be. Well, but maybe that points out that maybe St. Elmo's Fire was actually a crappy song, but that (laughs) my my sentimental memory of it um, transcends it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's right. Maybe if it's, I guess lightning doesn't always strike twice. Yeah. The Bell Jar is a really good book. I think we might have to do an episode on Sylvia Plath. Yeah. She had such a, an amazing life. It was so full of all kinds of ups and downs. And uh, it's it's really a, a literary story. Yeah. Even if she hadn't written anything, she would have a place in literature just from the personal life. So, and and the bell jar, you read about two pages of it, and you think uh, this is like Salinger. And then I was reading yeah. all the reviews, and that's what everyone was commenting on. I felt like it was actually, in some ways, a little better than Salinger. It maybe didn't mm-hmm. have quite the quite the narrative energy that the catcher in the rye does yeah. but it also felt a little less cutesy or a little less it, f- it felt a little more mature to me yeah i mean it's more uh you know it, I, it's kind of literature i like because it's it's on the level of a sentence like i was mm-hmm. i was re- reading some of my favorite passages and there's a section where she describes routines and she says i saw the days of the year stretching ahead like a series of bright white boxes and separating one box from another was sleep like a black shade only for me the long perspective of shades that set off one box from the next had suddenly snapped up and i could see day after day after day glaring ahead of me like a white broad infinitely desolate avenue Mm. yeah and a lot of this the book is like that so i think she's very much going for tragedy going for Whereas, like, uh, you know, Catch in the Rye is 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 sort of like in the great tradition of coming of age. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I mean, I think a Catch in the Rye more paired together with something like a separate piece by mm. John mm-hmm. Knowles, yeah. you know, and that kind of earnestness. And... Right. And and maybe when I say it's it's more cutesy and everything, maybe it could just be that the the protagonist is younger. Yeah. And it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, I think, now that I've gotten older. But with the bell jar, I still felt like I could identify with the, the main character a little more. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's one of those books that people, 
it, it's mythologized. People are like, mm-hmm. oh, that's, you know, it's a woman's story and she went mad. And I mean, roughly that's true, but I think it takes away from just how powerful a writer she was and yeah. you know, how powerful her poetry is. I mean, her poetry is just, I mean, it's shocking even yeah. today. Yeah. And it, it does, the bell jar really shows that if a poet has something to say and they have a, a gift for storytelling, the prose, you know, their prose is so good. Like she's got the ear, she's got the 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 balancing of the sentences. You know, she's she knows how words work. Yeah, I might I might have to reread it. Let's do an episode on it. Yeah. Okay. So I really wanted to choose Anita Ward's classic one hit wonder, "Ring My Bell." But then I was really only doing that because it has the word bell in the title. (laughs) (laughs) And then the disco beat and the lyrics, they're just too upbeat for Plath. (sighs) And you know what? Then I realized most hits are too upbeat. Yeah. So I I was delving around in classical one-hit wonders to try to set the right mood. But then I found a a song that I thought would, would do the trick. And the lyrics are, sometimes I feel I've got to run away. I've got to get away from the pain that you drive into the heart of me. The love we share seems to go nowhere, and I've lost my light, for I toss and turn, I can't sleep at night. (laughs) Which sounds, at least in Plath's, it's not as good as Plath, but it's at least in her neighborhood. The song is uh, Soft Cell with their 1981 synth-pop classic, Tainted Love. Sometimes I feel I've got to Run away, I've got to Get away from the pain you drive into the heart of me The love we share seems to go nowhere And I've lost my light For I toss and turn, I can't sleep at night Once I ran to you I love that song, so I approve. 43 weeks it spent in the Billboard Top 100. Wow. A whole year. And yet, Soft Cell only had one other single that they even released in the United States. (laughs) You know what their second best hit was? No. (laughs) It was another cover. Uh, Tainted Love was a cover. The, Uh the, The other song was the song What from their album, Nonstop ecstatic dancing. <laughs> and what's funny about this song is what it's listed in their on their Wikipedia page as what with an exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. And in Spotify, it's what with a question mark. <laughs> but if you look at the original, like on the on the single, it's just what with no punctuation. it was like nobody's even sure what it was actually what it was called or what it was trying to do it's a strange song it was originally released by melinda marks who was 
forced into music against her will by her father, Groucho Marx. So, uh, and she, it's, it's funny because she, you can hear her straining to hit the high notes of what Mm. she really wasn't a very gifted singer, but her father had dreams for her. So it's kind of a strange song for them to choose to cover. And then they just sort of disappeared into the ether with the song Tainted Love, just destined to be played over and over forever, but soft sell themselves kind of disappearing into that good night. (laughs) <laughs> so I guess that's it for our five. I was a little surprised that you didn't take Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I guess you're thinking that's such a flawed book. It's not really enough of a hit to qualify. I I, I am finishing my uh, rereading of it so I can do the uh, final uh, part of my David Foster Wallace po- uh, solo podcast. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be your uh, your gift to our listening audience. Uh, <laughs> anything else you want to add about the uh, one-hit wonders before we sign off here? I was inspired to uh, revisit a lot of my books on my shelves mm. that uh, stand alone, whereas oh, yeah. uh, so many of my books, uh, I've read so many lesser works by the same author like Marnamis or mm-hmm. You know, and just thought, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah. So it it, may, it kind of inspired me to try to find more one-hit wonders. Um, right. Person's best work versus like Martin Amos's ninth best work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of the point of our. Um, wasn't that? Oh, that was one of the ones that I had put forward. I think yeah. in our overrated episode that there were, you can probably read. Oh yeah. Like two or three Faulkner's and then move on to another author or two or three Saul Bellows. Right. And maybe, you know, if you want to do a deep dive into 10 or 12, that's great, but you shouldn't feel like you have to read all of Charles Dickens in order to be well-read. There's too many other books out there. Yeah. Agreed. A lesson that's been hard learned for me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. At great expense. My shelves are like yours. They're sort of like, you know, I have them alphabetically by author and I'm like, wait, you know, Henry James is taking up almost an entire shelf here. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Are we a one-hit wonder? I think we've had 196 hits. Uh, Who am I kidding? (laughs) There were probably a few duds in there, and maybe you wouldn't call any of them hits. Although, now that we're approaching 2 million downloads, I'd like to think we're doing okay. I have to say we're doing better than I thought we would. These episodes, these plucky little stragglers. We're doing our best. I'm so glad you all joined us today. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll have some Sylvia Plath coming up soon, and of course, our 200th episode, for which we have a special surprise in the works. I hope you have some surprises in your works. (laughs) Sounded a little odd, didn't it? 
I hope you have some surprises in store for you as we round the band of Thanksgiving, at least here in the States, and head for Christmas and New Year's or whatever holidays you have ahead of you. I hope you are enjoying life and finding a little time to read some great books. Might I suggest a little Sylvia Plath to help you get ready for our Plath episode or find one of your favorites from a past episode. Do some catching up. Maybe Shinwa Achebe or Thomas Hardy or one of the Brontes. Or you can join me on my annual tradition of reading one Dubliner's story a day, every day, culminating with the dead on Christmas Eve. In any case, be good to yourself and your loved ones, and we will do our best to help keep you company in our humble little way. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration, because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.